The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 33 of the Ascent of Board Games. We're still here soldiering on through the pandemic. It's Valentine's Day 2021 as we record this, so you can tell what our social lives are like. I bought my wife a crossbow for Valentine's Day. So oh, there. Frank, you're the best. <laughs> oh, I'm jealous. So romantic. <laughs> Wish I got a crossbow. Well, it's not too late. The day's young. Yeah, I'm going to go yell at Courtney. Although, I should point out now, <laughs> Sandy has a crossbow. <laughs> Be warned. <laughs> I mean, that's more danger for you than us, Frank. Yes, that's very true. True. The next time Frank's on the Kickstarter website about to hit back, and there's just a thunk noise. <laughs> <laughs> we are gathered together today to talk about two-player games, which is, as you might imagine, a huge selection of games available. It seemed relevant now because we're still struggling through the depths of a pandemic, and while it's not easy to get a group of people together to play games, two players is sometimes more manageable. It's also a really rich vein of games that we haven't talked about yet. I think from a marketability standpoint, this set of games has a very niche market that will forever be a board game player with a spouse or significant other. I think there's a lot more than that, but there are certainly cases where you'll want to get some of these if your significant other is into games or you want to get them into games. I mean, every classic abstract game periods two players. Right. And those are pretty hardcore games. You know, there's Mm -hmm. only one person you're fighting against. It's a pure, pure game for those kind of two-player abstracts. Well, it's funny that you mentioned fighting, Frank, because... uh... We're actually not going to be talking about direct conflict in this episode. Yeah, we needed to cut down our list into something a little more manageable. A lot of two-player games are themed around war or conflict or fighting, and that was a big enough list that we decided, you know what, let's leave those out of this episode and talk about some of the more abstract or more differently themed two-player games. Obviously, there is a huge number of games in this group, so we're just kind of doing the greatest hits or the ones we're most familiar with. But as always, we'd like to hear more about what you think. We actually went and played some of these recently on our nascent Twitch stream, which is twitch.tv slash a set of board games. And we're trying to get out there about every two weeks or so. I mean, we, we are not exactly flooding the airwaves. But if you want to go out there and check us out, usually uh, alternate Sunday mornings, we'll be out there playing some kind of thing which may give you a hint into the future episodes that are coming up. So yeah, two-player games going back into the deep darkness of prehistory. And uh, as usual, Frank has done some research and found some of the oldest examples yet. So really, I think our oldest is a um, a stick and pebble or pit and pebble race game. Kind of looks like a forerunner to backgammon. Played in a set of 58 holes, which form the track. One particular example includes like a kind of a hound and horse motif for these elaborate ivory pegs placed onto a violin-shaped board, which was found in a tomb by Howard Carter of King Tut fame. Mm. But looks like boards go further back, being uh, kind of scraped out in stone. And of course, the ones that were probably done in earth would be older. So this would be one of the really old games. As far as rules, no clue. Included sets of knuckle bones, 
So probably dice based racing. Okay. What was the earliest example? The earliest example would be probably basically pits kind of edged out in a rock. This would be in Gobustin. Gobustan? Found in the back of a cave. Ah. When you say pits and rocks, it almost sounds to me like I'm leaning towards like golf or something like that. <laughs> now the pits were a lot closer. Mancala. Uh, Mancala is sure. a much more recent traditional game, Owari and such. Yeah. That's uh, still played heavily in Africa. And Mancala is a great game. And it's a family of a, a ton of different pit and pebble games. There's an interesting theory I saw. You start playing by digging these little holes and dropping pebbles in them. That is so reminiscent of planting seeds, it may be as old as agriculture. Mm. So that kind of game concept seems like it may be pretty fundamental to human civilization. So that's pretty cool. I'll just assume there's yeah. a hidden trader in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is kind of interesting to think of like, hey, did this come about during the development of agriculture and having... Maybe somebody was playing this game and they just didn't have rocks, so they used these weird round seeds they found, and then boom, <laughs> plants grew. So games are responsible for the development of civilization. I mean, it's <laughs> it's not unheard of. It's like a lot of education-based stuff is gamified. I'm going to say this is the gamification of agriculture. <laughs> <Okay>. Boom. <laughs> you heard it here first, people. All right. Yep. Well. Now that we've established the foundation of all human existence. I think our podcast is over. Yeah, no, I think we're done. Thanks, guys. It's been a good run. <laughs> yeah, totally. Obviously, we've got a lot of the early classic games that we've talked about before are two-player games. Backgammon and its predecessors. Senate, Mancala. Chess. Chess and yeah. its predecessors. Of course, that's more to the war game side of things. But one that we did want to talk a little bit about because it's so hugely influential and kind of philosophical is Go. Go is a really fascinating game. It's extremely simple, right? So it's very abstract. One of the things I find the most fascinating about it is the level of abstractness and, and how that level of abstractness still leads to a very interesting game and a very challenging game. When you're playing Go, right, you're putting down these small stones onto a grid. And if you fully surround an area, you capture all the stones inside of that area. And it's really about, like, who has the most control across the entire board. And one of the things that's rather interesting about Go in general is that at any point you can pass saying, hey, you don't want to put down a stone, which is weird. It's weird, like, being in a game where you can just be like, no, nah, I'm not going to do anything. Or like games like chess, for example, which is kind of its emotional cohort in a lot of ways, right? Like, doesn't have that option. You have to move. Go is not like that. And one of the other interesting things is, like, you can never have your stones in such a way so that they are a previous game state. There are lots of places where you could potentially get into a loop and go, and it's like, as part of the rules, no stone may be placed so like a former game state is established. Trying to remember, it has been a minute since I've played Go as well. When you do encircle an area, do you remove all of the pieces inside of that area? Yeah, you do. But like your opponent would never want to play in there anyway, because then their pieces are immediately removed because it's an encircled area. When you actually watch a master game of Go, it's just absolutely unfathomable. They'll end up just placing stones out in the middle of nowhere, and especially at the start. And even then, sometimes the plays are just, they don't make any sense until you've tried playing a computer on a decent difficulty level and place a few stones near each other and get crushed. <laughs> I don't know how to play the game. It's so hard. <laughs> and we've talked about iterations of games like this before and it's like somebody has done the math and there are just like googleplexes of 
possibilities within the game. I was looking at something recently, and it's basically the number of possible legal positions on a Go board is many orders of magnitude larger than the number of atoms in the known universe. <laughs> it's just <laughs> ludicrous, which is why with computers and AI play, it was sort of like, oh yeah, you've done chess, great, now try Go. And we have actually got a computer that is capable of beating a Go master now. Yep, AlphaGo is pretty smart. We're pretty good at Go. Smart is the wrong word. Right. Although one of the things that I think is really interesting about Go is that it is possible to be a technically good Go player and not be a good Go player. Because in addition to the sort of mechanical rules of the game and taking pieces and that kind of thing, there is also sort of an unwritten rule that the game should be pleasing, should be satisfying, mm -hmm. like both aesthetically and philosophically, for lack of a better term. I haven't played enough Go to really articulate that well, but it's the sort of thing that, yes, a computer can mechanically play Go in a good way, but the resulting board is not satisfying to people who actually appreciate Go. I just want to take a second to appreciate that rule being applied to, like, other board games. Could you imagine... Catan with that rule. <laughs> this game of Catan must be pleasing both aesthetically and spiritually to everyone involved. It's almost like a role-playing aspect or certain games like the early versions of Mansions of Madness. Yes, I could go in and just crush this thing right now, but that wouldn't be satisfying from a story standpoint. It's almost like that abstracted down, I think. Like one of the best things about Go is if you've never played Go, watching someone play Go does seem totally unfathomable. Like, what the heck is even going what on? What are you doing? <laughs> Why would you do that? Why did you make that decision? Because in about ten turns from now, right, exactly, all will become clear. Go is like so like that; it's crazy. There's a lot to like about Go. It, it is inscrutable for novices, but like it is hyper simple. You could sit down and teach someone how to play Go in not that long, mm -hmm. but it has a lot of facets to it. Yeah, it is sort of the classic minutes to learn, lifetime to master. The first one I wanted to mention that has sort of been invented in the modern era is a game called Hex from 1942. This was designed by John Nash, a mathematician, and Piet Hein. Abstract two-player game that's played on this sort of hex grid that's shaped like a rhombus, a parallelogram, a diamond, depending on how you want to look at it. And basically, the objective is you're playing with stones very similar to Go stones, and your objective is just make a path between your side and the opposite side. You know, one person's going left to right, and the other person's going top to bottom, for lack of a better term. And so it's really simple mechanically, but, you know, like something like Go, it's very complex in the permutations. The better-known sort of incarnation of it. It's not really the same game, but it's very close. It's a game called Twixt, which Alex Randolph designed for 3M in 1962. And it's the same sort of thing. You have these pieces that you're trying to get an unbroken line from one side to the other while your opponent goes in the opposite direction. Twixt was one of the 3M bookcase games that in the 60s were, if people were playing board games at all, that was a lot of what they had. Oh, but Twixt looks gorgeous. I mean, pieces are all knights move apart, and they've got these little wrenches that slot on them. So it looks pretty cool when you see it played. Yeah, it's definitely, it's got like almost an engineering Tinker Toys kind of thing, because they're these pegs that are standing up on the board, and you have these bridges connecting them. So is it like as you are playing, you are literally cutting off your opponent's path? 
Exactly. Yeah. It's almost like the Tron sort of light cycle thing. You have <laughs> yes. these things that are running in parallel, and the first person who makes the corner is now cutting the opponent off. So yeah, there's another version called the Game of Y, which is a three-sided board, and you have to connect all three sides with your pieces. Huh. Hmm. You know, it's all the same concept with different iterations, but I don't know. I dig that kind of thing. Yeah, the, uh, looking at some of the images here on Board Game Geek, they have a picture of the back of the box from the 3M version. It's like it's like a sitting on a, a coffee table next to like a roaring fire. <laughs> it's like someone's having an intimate evening with twins. And a martini. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you do. Like you do. Hey, baby, you want to play some Twixt? There are a lot of amazing games in the 3M Classic series. I'm a fan. Yes, exactly. If you want to talk about the Sid Saxon Summer Fun Club, Alex Randolph and Sid Saxon obviously worked together at 3M, but Robert Abbott's Eleusis first appeared in uh, Gamut of Games, so you're kind of getting an abstract, almost a group of designers who work together going here. And the next game, Mike, is Confusion. Confusion uh, was made first in 1992 by Robert Abbott and published by Frenjos Spielverlag. Nailed it. it. And it is a fascinating fascinating twist on Stratego. It is not exactly Stratego, but it does play in a very similar way, except there's just one problem. Well, let's let's make sure we classify Stratego, because it's possible that some of our younger oh, sure, listeners sure. might not be familiar. Stratego is a game uh, I've never actually played Stratego, funnily enough. Okay, so basically you have a, a whole array of pieces in front of you, and they're marked on one side with a number of 1 through 9, and I think S for the spy, or maybe the spy is just a 1. And the bomb. And the bomb, right. And basically you have a whole array of these pieces and they're all marked on one side so that you can see what your pieces are and your opponent can't. And basically whenever one piece tries to capture another piece, you look at them, you compare them, and the lower number wins. There are some exceptions like bombs kill anything except the miner who can kill bombs and the spy can kill the highest ranking piece but nobody else. Anyway, the whole point is you have insufficient information about what your opponent is doing so it's a lot of bluffing. So... Confusion takes this concept of uh, hidden pieces and turns it around so that all of your pieces are facing your opponent and all of your opponent's pieces are facing you. On your turn, you pick a piece and look at a board that shows you all of the possible moves that pieces can make and you make a move. Your opponent will then tell you, you can't do that. Or maybe you can. Or maybe you can. So they've added a deduction game into Stratego as you make moves to figure out what your pieces can and cannot do, and then you make the best possible plays in order to win with the information that you get. And like making a illegal move, you move your piece back to where it started, and now it is your opponent's turn. That information is now yours but you've also lost a turn. The whole entire goal, how you win, is you're actually playing just a game of capture the flag, or in this case, a briefcase, as the theming is based around the Cold War between the United States and Russia. So you are trying to retrieve a briefcase that is in the middle of the board and bring it back to your side. I remember Frank had one of the original versions of this, one of the early Robert Abbott ones, which was just, it was not themed at all. It was just kind of gray blocks with the arrows on them. Yeah, that's the Frenjos version. But even then, it was like, what the actual hell is this? It was just mind-melting. I will say that the re-release that Stronghold did a while back is just beautiful. It's so well put together. 
The theming is, I don't know, not especially necessary in my book, but it, it's super cool. There are the different sort of lettered pieces, and the moves are on separate little plastic pieces that slide neatly in and out. So if a piece gets marked somehow, you don't necessarily know which move it is. It's just a fascinating game because it's like all these early stages of, I'm just going to try and figure out what my stuff does and then figure out how to win. Or sometimes maybe you just go, I'm going to try and grab the briefcase and maybe I get lucky. I think one of my favorite things about the Stronghold game is it comes with this honestly too big fold-out dossier that has all of your deduction notes in it on a dry erase board. And it not only lets you keep track of what your information is, but it also gives you a whole place that you can put what your opponent knows Mm -hmm. so that you can keep track of what your opponent knows so that you can maybe thwart them, but... Oh, God, just the levels. I don't have space in my brain for that kind of 4D chess. Oh, no, no, you bluff. But yeah, it does take a few levels of learning. First, you're kind of just, what do I do with my pieces? Then you're like, okay, I know his piece doesn't move that because I can see his piece right there. So this is safe. And then the next level is, well, he doesn't know about his piece that can do that. So I'll just bluff. Yeah, so obviously I wouldn't move here if you could take me. Yeah, exactly. They also have a piece in there, which I think they call it like the double agent or something like that. When it makes a move, the opponent can just say yes or no as they see fit. It has no predefined moves. So it's just like, oh yeah, no, no, he can't do that. I did it last turn. No, he can't do it now. (laughs) And that's honestly, I think, the primary reason of keeping track what your opponent knows is sure. When you are using that piece to your advantage, you can lead your opponent to think that it is one piece, only to have it not be that piece at a pivotal moment. But this game is, I think, one of my favorite two-player games, just because of how mind-bendy it is. Lots of crazy double-thinking it. Lots of crazy double-thinking it. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. You have to be in the right mindset to play this game. This is one where you need to be awake and focused and thinking, but I love it. So, Joe, maybe you've got something a little bit lighter for us? Yeah, sure. Let's talk about Netrunner, which released in 1996, published by Wizards of the Coast and designed by Richard Garfield. The fun thing about this game is that it's actually asymmetrical. The corporations have a group of agendas that they advance and, and score points via. And as a Netrunner, you're trying to steal those agendas to instead win. Right. And so it's interesting because like as the corp, you in essence have this massive fortress and you try to shore up the fortress and make sure your agendas keep rolling and keep scoring points from those agendas. And as a net runner, you're trying to kind of sneak into this fortress and steal those agendas and take them for yourself so you can instead get those points. And so it's interesting because it's very much set up to be a David versus Goliath setup. One side is very slow, very plotting. One side is very fast. Uh, one of the ways the game ends is if the net runner runs out of cards in his deck, right? Because like the net runner can draw lots of cards and play lots of cards and move really quick. The corporation has a lot less flexibility than that, but the game will end if the net runner expends all their resources. It's a really cool game. Both sides play very different. Unsurprisingly, from a game that is designed by Richard Garfield, it has a lot of crunch to it. There's a lot of thought that went into it. It has a lot of like mathematical beauty. I really dig the game. I have not played it myself, but I know several folks who are really big fans of it. A lot of people consider it one of the best two-player card games out there. 
the original was kind of a cult classic kept alive by fans for a while until Fantasy Flight came back, rethemed it to their Android universe, and re-released it. And uh, I think it's still going pretty strong now. Well, they did kill the game, but the fans are keeping it alive with fan-produced cards and tournaments and stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, I never actually heard, understood the reason why they killed it. From what I understand, it was still selling rather well. and It was still extremely popular, but who knows what Fantasy Flight does these days. Don't try to understand the machinations of Fantasy Flight. They are not for your human brain. <laughs> Down that path lies madness. I will say, though, I remember when this game first came out, I think Joe and I sat down to play it, and it it felt slightly unscrutable. Like, I think one of the things I remember is, like, you have to choose where you are placing cards. Yep. And it's like, you can attack the corporation's discard pile, or their draw deck, or their securities on their different lanes, or you can just create a new lane. And I was, like, overwhelmed by the options, in all honesty. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that makes the game a lot of fun. It also makes it, for a novice, extremely inscrutable, because since you're playing asymmetrically, you can't even learn the rules with each other. You both have to learn the rules separately for how your specific side works. I still dig the game a lot. Mike was very flummoxed by the game, for sure, the first time we tried to play it. Next game I wanted to talk about is called Lost Cities. This one won me over because it's archaeology-themed, and I'm an archaeology nerd among all my other nerderies, so uh, I dig that. This was a 1999 release by Reiner Knizia and one of the first games in Cosmos Games' two-player game series, which is still going strong today. They have got probably close to 100 games in the series by now, and they're mostly pretty good. They're little rectangular boxes with everything you need for two players. Lost Cities is a fairly straightforward game. There are basically five suits, which represent different archaeological sites. And each turn, you can basically play a card on one of those sites. You have to play the cards in ascending order. Once you've played a three, you can't play a two, and that sort of thing. And when you play a card on one of the sites, you start with minus 15 points. And your total score is the total value of all the cards you've played in that series minus the 15 points. So if you play a card on a site and then you don't have enough points and you can't get enough cards to commit to those in sequence, it's going to wind up costing you. So basically you're taking your long suits and trying to maximize those. Of course, you don't know which of those cards your opponent has. There are also cards you can play before starting a group that basically double the value of points, positive or negative. So if you know you have a lot of yellow cards, you can play the yellow magnifier card. But if you wind up losing that, you're losing even more points than you would before. It's pretty straightforward. Draw a card, play a card. Most points across the five sites wins. But it's just a neat little back and forth struggle as you sort of figure out where your opponent's strengths are and uh, try to optimize where you're getting the most points out of. Most of the Cosmos games are like that. They're not complicated, but they are, are pleasantly thinky. Yeah, I always dig this game because you were like, oh, cool, I got a five. I'll, I'll totally be able to score this thing. And you play the five and you draw the ten. You're like, well... mm, if I play the ten here, I'll get zero, which is good but I could get more points. Yeah. Oh, wait. And then you don't get anything else ever for the rest of the game. And then your opponent is like, well, I'm going to start with the one and then the three and then the four and then the six. And it's like, oh dear. <laughs> and there've been a couple sort of later iterations of this. There was a game called Keltus, actually a couple games in the Keltus series 
that basically allow for more players and have some different weird scoring opportunities. And there's also a Lost Cities to Go, which is basically just kind of the travel version of the game. And a Lost Cities board game, which, yeah, is kind of like Keltus. Yeah, I remember hearing about it. Lost Cities, the card game, the board game. Yeah. They made a travel game of this? Like, this game is already pretty travel-friendly. I don't... How does it get more travel-friendly? The cards are just smaller? I was hoping you would use magnets. Somehow. I mean, to be fair, the base cards were like the big old tarot size. Big old tarot, yeah. yeah. The tarot's deck yeah, size. Yeah, it is a big deck. So yeah, these are the mini cards. So I just make them plain deck size. It's fine. It's smaller. From looking at it, it looks like they're <laughs> actually cardboard tiles, which I guess are less likely to blow away if you're playing outside or whatever. Oh, sure. there you go. Just get the base game. It's fine. It's good. Apparently, it's my job to talk about all the abstracts, isn't it? <laughs> we don't like abstract games. Oh, I love abstract games. In 2000, we got basically what's a modern classic, mm-hmm. and that's Hive by uh, John Yanni, published by his own Gen 42 Games. This is such an amazing game. It's got a kind of chess-like thing going. Basically, you've got a bunch of different bugs with each certain jumping powers and such, and you've got your queen. And the object of the game is to surround the opponent's queen, which is uh, fairly tricky. The weird thing about Hive, though, is all the pieces are hexagonal, and the game doesn't have a board. Instead, all the pieces must stay in one contiguous group. So when you jump, you have to still be touching another bug of someone's. Pieces can jump, slide all the way around the edge and perimeter, uh, and have different moves based on the type of piece. And, uh, you know, that's kind of your game. But the way the game plays when you're actually playing it, you're using the board, the shape, and basically, you know, creating lines or cutting people off from moving by basically making, if they move their piece, it would break the board into two sections. And so there's a lot of work about, you know, trying to build up another path so you can free a piece in order to move it. And eventually the board will kind of somehow stretch off into lines where pieces will be just trapped and pinned into place. Hopefully one of those is not your queen because then a whole army of opponents' bugs will try marching toward it to surround it. Yeah, it's kind of hard to describe, but just having all the the pieces move around in different ways and chain together It's another one that I've played enough of the game to have a basic idea of the mechanics, but people who know this game, the combos and things they can set up and the openings they'll see is just amazing and very pretty to look at. It's got that nice sort of tactile feel. It's one that has been super highly regarded since it came out. Also, you never remove pieces from the board, Mm -hmm. which is unusual for that kind of tactical game. So you're always kind of pinning them in place by just the shape of the uh, collection of bugs. And it all works, and it's really, really good. Yeah, it's quick. It's maybe 20 minutes to play. If you're at all interested in abstract games, it is well worth your time to look this up. There's a a bunch of versions out there, and some of them are, are just gorgeous. Yeah, and above all, because of the production and the style of game, it feels classic. It feels like a game that's been around forever. And it's one of two games that kind of came out in this time period that really did that for me. The other one we'll talk about later because it remained virtually hidden forever. Hmm. Hive also has several expansions available, which is basically here's a new bug for each player that has a new way of moving. There's three official ones, the mosquito, the ladybug, and the pill bug. It'd be like in chess if you could, you know, just go out to your local, like, open-air market. And save up and get a dragon for each player, yeah. Yeah, that's 
pretty interesting. Most of these two-player games are kind of self-contained games that are developed and done. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But we haven't gotten to the war game ones. That's, that's probably going to be a different story for some of those. Yes. Oh, absolutely. That's where all the expendable cash goes. One of my favorite things about Hive is just the pieces themselves are made out of that nice, like, acrylic. It's the kind of domino tile stuff. Yeah. That, yeah fill your balls and everything, and yeah. But it's it's the same stuff that the, we didn't talk about it, that the confusion pieces are made out of. And it yeah. really does have that very domino or mahjong feel to them. Yeah, it's almost like the old uh, Bakelite plastic from the 60s. Yeah. Yeah, oh, totally. There's this really nice-looking black-and-white version that just looks very aesthetically pleasing. There's a guy who's done a set on, like, brass and nickel, like gold and silver oh, engraved pieces. It's super pretty. Must have weighed a ton. <laughs> yeah, and be super expensive. Yeah. So um, about this time period, Cosmos was hitting their two-player line heavily, so you got, like, two or three a year. So there are a few Cosmos two-player games because they were really good. Odin's Ravens by Thorsten Gimler came out in 2002, again, published by Cosmos. That one is a racing game where you are uh, basically playing Hugen and Munin, which are Odin's Ravens, and you're trying to race to gain the favor of Odin, which is very German, very European. (laughs) But anyway, uh, the charm of this game, it's very accessible. Basically, you have a number of domino-like cards placed out in front of you, and one side of those cards represents your path, the other side represents the other raven's path, your opponent. And uh, for the most part, what you're doing is you have flight cards in your hand, and if you play a flight card matching the next terrain in your path, you can move. And not only that, you move to the end of that terrain. So if there are three cloud spaces in front of you, you move to the last cloud space. The rest of the cards involve flipping, swapping, and generally screwing with the order of those cards, or adding new cards, since you they're available, a hand of extra terrain cards that you can merrily just add on to the end of the board. And you play three races, and your difference in your position at the end of a race, when someone completes the journey, is points. And that's actually, the game is relatively simple, but gives you kind of a good racing action. It also always gives you something to do, because at worst, you can lengthen the board. And of course, when you're lengthening the board, you're placing a good side of a card that you can just fly right through pretty easily, but also trying to match the flight cards in your hand that represent spaces you can actually move to. And so there's a hand of also Elfenland and Elfin Roads, which were older games because you're playing cards matching where you want to move, but then also manipulating those boards. And so it's a clever race game. There's a second edition that came out from uh, Osprey Games. Is there any gameplay differences or is it just a re-release? I think that the newer one sounds like it's slightly better. And the original, you did three races. And this one, it's one long race and first wins, which I think is a it feels like a better victory condition. Yeah. The art's great, though. Yeah. Uh, I gotta say, both editions looks really sharp, but I think oh, the yeah. newer one kind of slightly edges it over in theme. And it was Osprey Games is doing the new one? Yep, Osprey. Yeah, which, which would make sense. I love their reissues. Also, a traditional game, finally, I get to go back to traditional games, <laughs> is a classic called Spite and Malice. And I'm referring to a specific edition here. came out 2002, 2003. It's a little vague because it kind of came out with no fanfare at all. I understand that it was a Rob Davio design. Huh. Um, it's, 
Rob Davio. Never heard of him. He was an in-house designer for Hasbro at the time, and he did a lot of weird things. And I think I remember him saying at one point this was him. So Spite and Malice is a traditional game. It's kind of a two-player solitaire. Basically, you have a hand of cards, you have a bunch of open decks, and you take turns playing a number directly on top of a deck. So if you have a three, six, seven, you could play the four, seven, or eight from your hand on top of those stacks. A couple things with this particular edition of Spite and Malice changed a lot. For one, the card art is all about cats killing each other. It looks very spy versus spy almost. Also, the design change. So there are a lot more one cards and you're forced to play two cards. But then there are a lot of Spite and Malice cards that are effectively wild. And when you play them, they screw with your opponent. So there's even more interaction between the two players and a little more vicious. It's still a very light game, but bound in, in both a classic game and then well-designed with a tweaked deck to actually make it playable. In the original game, you would lock up a lot to where no one could play and you'd have to just kind of draw cards. And that actually is kind of boring. Really, in this modern version of Spite and Malice, it's much rarer. And it almost feels like, assuming it's Rob Davio, he fixed a classic game and suddenly made it into something you'd want to play. Oh my gosh, there's a cat with an executioner's hood. This art's crazy. (laughs) Oh yeah! (laughs) Yeah, there's one with a little Iron Maiden. (laughs) It's like Spy vs. Spy, the cat version. (laughs) Some manacles and a drill. I also wanted to mention uh, another one of the Cosmos two-player series that I really have appreciated for a while, which is Balloon Cup. came out in 2003, designed by Stephen Glenn. It's sort of a racing game. Basically, there are four different tiles in the middle of the board. They are either planes or mountains, which means you either want to play low cards or high cards. And there's a set of different colored cubes on them, which match the different suits of the cards. Gray, blue, green, yellow, and red. There's going to be one tile with one cube on it, one with two, one with three, one with four. And basically the colors of the cubes indicate what number and color of cards need to be completed to to finish that race. If there is one gray cube on a card, once there is one gray card on each player's side, that one is finished. If there's four, that's two, a blue, a green, and a yellow, that's the combination of cards that need to be on each player's side to finish it. And basically you have the decks of cards, which are one through 12, I believe. And each turn you can play a card on one of the races, either on your side or on your opponent's side. So if you are trying to get low gray cubes and all you have are high gray cards in your hand, you just play the high card on your opponent's side. So it's a combination of making your your own cards better and your opponent's worse. There's a neat distribution because there's a very small number of gray cards, and I think red is, is the longest suit. Again, it's not super complicated. I just find it tactically interesting. It's one of those games that has fun little choices each turn as you try and optimize what you've got in your hand. There's some pictures on the Geek of someone who has done a Star Wars version for no apparent reason. It's a neat game that plays in about half an hour or so, and I would be happy to break out any time, mostly because I just want to play games with physical people again. Aww. We want to play games with you, too. Well, Balloon Cup is probably going to be easier to get on the table than the next two-player game we're going to talk about, which is a big epic and also one of the highest-rated games in BGG history, which is Twilight Struggle. 
This is a two-player, several-hour reenactment of the Cold War over 30-some years. It was released in 2005 by Ananda Gupta and Jason Matthews by GMT Games. And it is an amazing game that is kind of a serious commitment. In the game, you are playing either as the U.S. or the Soviet Union, and you are trying to get enough influence in the world to win the game. There are various ways to get points, and basically, if you get to 20 points more than your opponent, you win. You can also win by getting your opponent to trigger a nuclear war, which (laughs) (laughs) seems like sort of a Pyrrhic victory, I guess. But it's like, hey, it's not my fault that civilization was destroyed. It's a moral victory. (laughs) There's a whole world map that you're placing influence on all these different countries, and some countries are more important in a region than others. Periodically, you'll score different regions of the board, and depending on how much influence you have in different countries, you'll get more points. But what really makes the game are the individual cards, because it's a deck of a hundred and some cards, all of which are unique, and they're all like specific historical events. Castro takes over Cuba, or the Cuban Missile Crisis, or Charles de Gaulle taking over in France, all these things over like, you know, like I say, 30 years of history. And each turn, you have a hand of cards. Each turn, you are playing cards that have a value of like one through four. And each of them has that point value and an event. There are some events that are good for you. If I'm playing the U.S., I have a particular card that's good for me. I can either play that for the event, which does a cool thing, or I can play it to use the points to try to influence countries or hold a coup or that sort of thing. Or there are cards that might have your opponent's event on them. And then you play the card for the points, and then your opponent gets to do the event. And some of these events can be hugely powerful in the game. So there are a lot of cases where you're saying, I really need the points on this card, but if I give this event, it's going to like unlock Central America and suddenly he's going to take over that whole region. And you wind up playing almost every card in your hand over the course of the turn. There are a couple ways to get rid of cards if there's something you absolutely don't want to play and let your opponent do. It's a super deep game. It's again, one that I think needs a lot of play in order to get familiar with it, because there are certainly some mistakes you can make that an experienced player will just sort of crush you on. It is educational, which is always nice. It's just such a great engine and uh, deep and rewarding game. I'm not very good at it yet. I've been playing a fair bit of lately because there's a very nice PC implementation on Steam from... Playdeck. Playdeck, yeah. It's really nicely put together, does a good job of teaching you and walking you through the rules. And if any of you guys ever want to get a game in, I would be happy to. Oh, pretty, yeah. It was number one on Board Game Geek for a while. I feel like it's still in the top five, certainly top ten. It's number ten right now. I think it was taken out by, like, a pandemic. Probably a pandemic legacy. Or Gloomhaven, one or the other, yeah. Yeah. It's still top ten games of all time on the Geek, and I think earns it. It's just beautifully designed and so thematic, I can't even tell you. Yeah, I do like the kind of effect where you have to play a card which does something good for your opponents Mm -hmm. that shows up in Crusader Kings, which is a weird, almost random RPG multiplayer game. But that particular card mechanism is there, and it kind of makes that game. Yeah, there's just so many little nice, clever, well-thought-out touches. There's a card called the China card, which is the only five-point card in the game. And basically, you can play that as if it was in your hand when you have it. But when you play it, you give it to your opponent. And it's just, you know, so many neat little things like that. The card deck is separated into like three eras. There's like early game, middle game, late game. 
So it's like you play through the early game, which is all kind of focused around Europe and the Mideast, and then it gradually starts expanding out into Asia. And then in the late game, you get into like South America and Africa. (laughs) The way the game evolves over time is just super cool, and I'm delighted by it. Let's bring it down a notch. I think we're two globe spending at this point. What (laughs) if we just focus on Whitechapel, London? Yeah, I could do that. When, though? Uh, how about 1888? I mean, nothing interesting was happening then, but so we can, like, <laughs> Certainly chill not in there, Whitechapel. <laughs> calm... Oh, wait. Wait, shoot. <laughs> Nobody told me about this. Well, let's talk about Mr. Jack, which was released in 2006 by Hurricane, designed by Bruno Cathala and Ludwig Malblanc. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. So it's a two-player game. One player is Mr. Jack, and he is trying to escape the board in essence or not get caught and one player is a detective and is trying to determine where mr jack is there are eight people tokens on the board and each round um the mr jack player gets to move some of them around and then the detective player gets to ask some questions to the other player about the state of the game so he can like call in a witness to see if that person can see mr jack he can ask whether mr jack can be seen at all and there's lights that like illuminate mr jack to passerby and if he's near another person then he's also uh, can be seen yeah to be clear mr jack is one of the eight players and we don't know which one yeah so at the start of the game you decide on or i think you randomly get chosen one of the characters to represent mr jack in this game as mr jack your goal is to either leave the district or not get caught and as a detective your goal is to determine which of these tokens is mr jack and arrest him it's a cute little game about a serial killer. About <laughs> a serial killer. I mean, like, it's a cute, light little it's game, It's cartoony, honestly. you know. It's there's very no cartoony. Blood. All the blood is cartoony. It's totally fine. <laughs> you play out these specific cards, which you have all the characters. Each of their movement cards either allow you to move some tokens around or to use some specific ability that that card has. All, all kinds of interesting stuff, so. Yeah, and there's a lot of bluffing going on, of course, as Mr. Jack. Well, I'm moving this guy towards the exit. Is that because he's Mr. Jack or am I trying to distract your attention over there? Mm -hmm. It's just a neat little compact deduction chasing game. So next up would be Sandy's choice for best two-player game ever. And we do what Sandy says because she has a crossbow. (laughs) Yeah, totally. This is one I actually played a lot because Sandy's favorite (laughs) two-player game. Designed by Kuro, published by his own Manifest Destiny and Japan brand. The more recent editions by Osprey, which means, yes, it's nice. Kuro's an interesting designer, Japanese, but he does like 10 games a year. And they're all completely bonkers and often quite good. I mean, you get Alice Heroes that I like where everyone plays half a dozen Alices all in different themes. Like as in Alice in Wonderland or? As in Alice in Wonderland, yes. So you've got goth Alice, you've got mutated Alice. (laughs) Looking at the cards on that game is wonderful. Or the Terrifying Girl Disorder, which doesn't need anything beyond that title to be awesome. Sure. (laughs) This is the Ravens of Three Sahashri. That's a two-player cooperative game. Three Sahashri kind of means the other plane. It's a Buddhist term meaning like million worlds. So one of you is a girl, Ren, who's lost her memory, and she's unconscious. A detective, her boyfriend is going to go into her mind to try to recover the fragments of her memory. Yeah, like you do. Before it's eaten by the ravens that occupy this other plane. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's giving him clues to help him out. 
and the form of a haiku. Actually, it's not a haiku, <laughs> but another type of Japanese poetry. Dodoitsu, which is 7775 for the syllables. Okay, got that? <laughs> sure. Yep. I'm in. Right, Perfectly right there with you. Basically, the detective draws these cards. Each card has a color, five colors, and uh, numbered from one to five. They're also ravens in the same colors, one of each. The detective can draw as many cards as he wants, but if he draws a raven, any cards over a variable number will just be eaten by the ravens and removed from the game. You've only got three rounds, and when a card's removed from the game, it's gone forever. So that memory's completely eaten. The cards themselves have two-by-two two grids on them, and you must overlap part of the grid with other parts of the grid. So you end up playing cards on top of cards to form this elaborate mental image on the board. So it's a weird tiled grid of cards that you're playing. At that point, if you get seven of a color, or seven points in cards of a color touched together, you can basically trade those for a clue about one line of the poem and the color involved. Oh, wow. <laughs> it gets weirder. Oh, good. I don't know how that's even possible, but go ahead. And at the end of the round, once you've played cards to the grid, the girl can then pick one of the cards you played and remove it to place in the poem with that counting toward the 7775. And she has to do it exactly, but she also has a hidden card. So in order to win the round, you have to complete the poem. So you have to have played enough cards. And the playing field has to consist of the hidden cards, colors only. Must include all those colors and only those colors. So basically the detective's playing cards to this grid while the amnesiac is trying to remove colors they don't want. And the two are trying to work together to work out exactly what colors are involved and make sure those stay on the board. The amnesiac also gets powers at some point, which he can use to influence the board and hopefully give some clue to the detective this game sounds fascinating i know it's like i really <laughs> want to try it i don't understand it oh it is it's complex and weird and alien but the theme is totally there and it is hard i mean really hard even to understand how to play it is yeah i mean I'm, I'm not sure i get it <laughs> but yeah it's so unlike anything you've ever played so unusual there is actually a, depending on how many points you've made, there is a kind of a point scoring, determine how well you did. And you get a little storybook to explain, you know, how the thing came out. Yeah, some in which you gained consciousness, but still can't remember her name or anything, etc. I think one of my favorite things about this is that it's all done in like this shoujo manga style. Yeah, like totally. Romance novel type aesthetic. Oh, yeah. It's really pretty. I feel like oh, I've watched gorgeous. this anime before. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> you definitely have, Mike. You definitely, definitely have. Kuro's games are all anime-ish themed and have a variety of anime and manga styles. I've got quite a few, and uh, we should drag some of those out because they're all really interesting. There's another one he did called Scratch House, where you're building competing versions of the Winchester house. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> Which may or may not be the same house. It's hard to say. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, and ghosts are giving you advice on how to build. That sounds fascinating and bizarre. Yeah, and very cute and kawaii. <laughs> So the next game is Clask, which is a bloodbath in game form. <laughs> Quite the transition. I bled while playing Clask, so there. <laughs> okay, well, you live with Sandy, so that's, you know, entirely... <laughs> that's uh... on you. <laughs> that's true. Clask is, uh, well, kind of air hockey-ish, really. You have a big magnet, and you have a little kind of pawn that you move magnetically on top of the board. 
you're moving the magnet under. You've got a ball in these three pucks and basically a goal. And you're trying to knock the balls into the goal and you get points for it. There's a couple of weird things about class. There are three little like hockey pucks in the middle. Also under the board to keep you from colliding your hand into your opponent is a wooden divider, which if you slam your fist in too hard. <laughs> I think we're discovering why Frank bled. <laughs> uh, yeah, true. Yeah. It's fairly expensive at 50 bucks, and it has that kind of air hockey thing. But there's also a little more going on because basically you want to shoot past the obstacles. So you can shift the obstacles, and they can gradually change what kind of decent shots you can make. Plus, if you move your piece too fast because of the magnet, it limits how hard and what kind of force you can use to actually hit the ball. So it's a lot more subtle than air hockey. I first played this, and I actually got a copy when I was at PAX Unplugged a couple of years back. I met up with the guys from the Dicebreaker website, oh, yeah. YouTube thing. And uh, at one point, after a beer or two, they started getting into doubles class, which is... Uh, <laughs> no, 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 Which no. was horrifying. <laughs> but yet, I have a copy sitting at home, so someday we can play it in Meatspace. There are a lot of those undersized table games where the physics don't really work well compared to, like... You know, a full-size air hockey table, which I started playing classical like I would play air hockey and... Hence the violence. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> okay, well, I am looking on the internet, and apparently there is now official Clask 4, yeah. a four-player version of class. Uh-huh, see? It was a good idea. I'm scared. <laughs> so, Brian, also looking at images here on Board Game Geek, did this come on your box? The tagline here, uh, get your hand under that table. Try to score, but watch out for the hole. Clask! <laughs> uh, no, mine, mine did not say that. I think that That's would have been in problematic. <laughs> well, maybe it should have. Maybe it should have. How often does the ball go, like, bouncing out of the play field? You know, speaking of air hockey, that's always a, Pretty a, a risk. Pretty rarely. Occasionally, yeah. I mean, you're limited to on the speed you can move that pawn. And so, and the pawn's tiny. It doesn't happen as often as you'd think. It looks like in the four-player game, every person is, their hand is quarantined under the board by like a quarter of a circle. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, even if you wanted to move to your partner's space, you can't. Oh yeah, no, you, you oh, can't. Yeah, that makes sense. You are yeah. limited to your part of the board. Even as hard as you try to knock your hand through that wood. <laughs> just it's it's just it. going to hurt more. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, maybe we should play something a little more peaceful. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about because this next game is the most cutthroat <laughs> war of the buttons imaginable. I don't know why we left this one on this list instead of moving it to the fighting game. Because uh, everybody who plays Patchwork knows that uh, it's bloodthirsty. Quilting to the death. 2014 UA Rosenberg Lookout Games. Two-player game of quilting. In this game... You are basically playing a spatial arrangement puzzle in which you are trying to create the most complete quilt that you can. Each person is going to take turns picking from one of three puzzle pieces that they will fit onto their board. And those puzzle pieces come in just a variety of shapes and sizes and also different costs that you pay in buttons. When you take them, though, you also have to move your score marker along a track that has certain thresholds that determine when you get paid out. So every time you cross one of these thresholds, you'll take a look at your board, 
see how many buttons you have on pieces that you've quilted in, and that is going to be your pay. So there's this weird balance between like, hey, am I buying this piece because it fills a hole that I need? Because if I don't fill that hole, I'm going to get negative points at the end of the game versus, ooh, I'm going to buy this piece because it has lots of buttons on it. Or I'm going to take this piece because it will move me past a threshold and I will get a payday. And so there's a lot of decision space there. And it's just a it's a real quick, fun little game, but it is full of time vortex. Yeah, this game, the only way I've actually played it is through the digital implementation. But I know for a while it was like all the rage. Everybody here in our local circuit was in love with this game. It is certainly good. Like, the digital implementation is really well done. It's got some very fitting graphics. I don't love the aesthetic choice because they all look like quilted patchwork dolls, but it's fitting for the game. It also frequently goes on sale, and it works great. It has online multiplayer. Like, nothing but good things to say about this. All right. Well, I'll give it a look. I ain't scared of your buttons. Uh, So, speaking of games that we've played in online implementations... Y'all actually played this one. Oh, that's right. You didn't. Yeah, you didn't. You weren't. But I've actually played Seven Wonders Duel in person. What? I in know. Meat Space? Ugh. But this was uh, originally made in 2015 by Anton Bowza and Bruno Cathala. I know Bowza did Seven Wonders. Is that right? Right. Correct. Mm-hmm. But Cathala didn't work on the original Seven Wonders, right? Uh, I think that's true. But he's a, also he's a French designer well known, who does yeah. a lot of, yeah. Right. And this was made by Repos Productions. And much like in Seven Wonders, you are drafting cards, except instead of having a hand, there is a pyramid set up, for lack of a better word, Mm -hmm. that is layered on top of each other with some of the cards face up and some of the cards face down. You cannot take a card that is underneath another card, so it does have a little bit of ordering to it and you go back and forth taking your cards you activate those cards much like in seven wonders i think another big change is the way that the war mechanic works which is more of a tug of war than Mm -hmm. it is the scoring system from the original seven wonders game. yeah you can actually take a military victory if you get the tug of war all the way across but much like in seven wonders there's still the seven colors of cards each representing a different aspect of civilization yep and you still get the guilds in the third age and that sort of thing so it's got all of the basic stuff from seven wonders but it's nicely streamlined down and instead of the drafting you have the sort of pyramid approach yeah the face up face down card mechanic makes for some agonizing choices where it's just like i really want this card but it's going to reveal a card that i probably don't want my opponent having so i don't know what i'm going to do on my turn Yeah, I mean, more information is better, but at the same time, it's like, oh, God, he can't get any more science. Yeah, because when you uncover a face-down card, it is immediately flipped up for your opponent. Isn't that right? Correct. Yep, it's flipped up, and your opponent is the first one that has a chance to grab it, yeah. Right. Yeah, because you do one card at a time. Seven Wonders tools, quite nice. And while I wouldn't play Seven Wonders, I would play that. You don't like Seven Wonders? No, not really. I think we have a certain amount of fondness for it because at Dragon Con, for instance, that was a game that, you know, was going almost constantly in the back room of the game. Uh-huh. Just because you can get up to eight people in it, you know, drop in, totally. drop out. It's a nice game that plays a lot of people and still moves fast. 
I hadn't played the duel before we tried it a couple of weeks ago, and uh, yeah, it's really elegant. I quite like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think while it is not exactly the same as the Seven Wonders game, I think it does a good job of representing oh, the yeah. same feel. Oh yeah, it absolutely feels like Seven Wonders. So, uh, last game I'm going to talk about is that other model. Oh, you're going to come up with a last minute edition and throw it in. Oh, there. you're right. I, wow, I need... Okay, oh, he's already that working all. on it. Okay, totally. <laughs> But first, let's talk about Santorini. Originally published in 2004, self-published by Gord. (laughs) There's an exclamation point at the end of that, so I'm pretty sure it has to be pronounced Gord. You're not wrong. Everyone knows it because uh, 2016 published by the amazing Roxley Games. This is a two or possibly three player abstract. Uh, It's generally played two, but there is a weird three player variant in the original game. And uh, you have to stand on top of the world. Specifically, in this case, the world is a small 5x5 grid representing the island of Santorini. And that's the, the Greek island with all the little blue roofs and domes so and things. So oh, It's gorgeous. And when you look at the game, well, damn, it looks like Santorini. You have a bunch of building floors and you build up to three floors on top of a base grid and potentially cap that with a dome. Each player has two pawns and on a turn you move a pawn and then basically increase the level of terrain by one level next to one of your pawns. And you do that a lot. You can only walk up one level and you want to be standing on top of the third level before it gets capped with one of the stupid blue domes. While you can place a level, even if you're on the ground, you can place a blue dome all the way up on top. The only way to stand on something is to actually move up. And that would almost be the entire game, except for the special power cards. During each play of the game, each player gets a special power. And this can be move up to two spaces. When you look at the powers, they're crazy. And in the Roxley Games version, there's like 50 of them. Even the base game is actually pretty good. It might be one of those that's solvable at some point. By the time you get any combination of special powers, it just hurts your brain. And they're often really simple things. It's a game you can pick up in seconds, literally. But then with that replayability from the special powers, they completely change the game in weird, weird ways. Okay. Yeah, and it's gorgeous. If you look at the Roxley Games version, there are little sculpted white levels with staircases. The roofs are blue. The inside of the box has this elaborate grid that's kind of multicolored, which you turn over. And so it's got kind of gray cliff face below the square green terrain board. And then you've got nice little Greek worker pawns. Yeah, I've seen the game. It does look very pretty, but I uh, haven't actually played it. So. Oh, you're looking at 15 to 20 minutes. It's a fairly easy playing abstract game, so it's not as hard to learn as some of the others. And you never know where each game's going because of that special power. Yeah, <laughs> okay. So the next game on our list is Imhotep the Duel, released in 2018, designed by Phil Walker Hart and uh, released by Cosmos in their series of two-player games. Imhotep the Duel is fascinating because it, in a lot of ways, directly maps the up to four-player game and gives you a very similar theme while you're doing something totally different. So in Imhotep the Duel, there's a 3 by 3 grid where you'll be placing pawns of your color, or you choose to unload a specific ship. 
much like the four-player game, the two-player game has that kind of wonderful tension between, well, maybe I should put another pawn down so I can get some more resources if one of these ships actually go out, versus the, hey, maybe I should just, like, declare people are picking up stuff from this ship now so that my opponent doesn't get something from it. Or even like, hey, my opponent is kind of blocking something that I want. Let me go tell this other ship to pick up. Because it's only a 3 by 3 grid, you pick up along the orthogonal lines of the grid, right? So you can be like, well, hey, I want the top row to pick up so that I can have the leftmost vertical row pick up next turn. And that only has my guys and it has something that I want. It does a really good job of, of feeling, have a very similar feel to Imhotep, mostly because the kind of ship tension is very similar in feel with you doing like totally different interactions and then the scoring mechanisms are when you get stuff off the ship they go into various places on your board and you get points for some of them are just like just straight points and some of them are making a pyramid and you get the smallest of your two pyramids that score at the end of the game and there are artifacts at one-time powers and all the tokens feel very very similar to the way the base imitep game works and it, it feels really good i was actually really surprised by how it felt when we played it i was like man this feels a lot like the four-player imitep game yeah yeah, I wasn't expecting a, a lot from it when we played it out, but the whole little 3x3 three three tic-tac-toe grid almost really makes it fascinating because you have to balance the rows and the columns. You need to have at least two pieces, yours or your opponent's, in a row or a column to ship that ship. And where you are in the row or column determines what thing you get. So it's like, well, I'm going to place this guy here because I want to be on both of these ships. But then if my opponent goes here, he gets the thing I really wanted on this other ship. So do I go ahead and bite the bullet and ship that one now? It's just a really neat balancing act. As with most of the board game arena, it's a really nice implementation that is well thought out and easy to use. Well, before we get to my game here, Brian, I just want to run you through a quick exercise. Are you ready? Are you feeling comfortable? Uh, sure. Um, I'm a little nervous, but I'm, I guess that's fine. All right. While walking along in a desert sand, you suddenly look down and see a tortoise crawling towards you. You reach down and flip it over onto its back. No, I don't. Don't tell me what to do. The tortoise lies there, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over. But it cannot do so without your help. You are not helping. Why? You, you can't tell me what I'm doing in box text. That's like the first rule of D&D. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you haven't explained why you aren't helping. Yeah, that's a simple question, Brian. We've only got five minutes here, so I feel like you really should start speeding up I'm not answer. helping because Jason has decided I'm a monster. <laughs> For anyone who was wondering what the hell I was babbling on about, that was from the Void Kampf test from the classic movie Blade Runner. And our next game is called Inhuman Conditions, and it's basically a point comp the game. <laughs> the idea yep. here is uh, you're basically trying to determine with a human investigator if the person that they're interviewing is a human being, in which case everything's great, or a robot, which could be very bad. And it's attempting to replicate what was going on in, that, in the movie, and it does it in a lot of very clever ways. One player will be playing as the possible human, possible robot, and they're given... A uh, set of traits and a set of restrictions on things that they can and cannot say. If they break this list of restrictions, they have a penalty they have to pay. That'll be like a, think of it as like a verbal tick, where they'll have to do something like ask for clarification or some, some such thing. And the investigator knows what that tick is. Yes, that it is public information. And the investigator has basically five minutes to determine through questioning this individual and trying to get them to either slip up or to answer something incorrectly to make a determination. Is this a human? Is this a robot? Meanwhile, the robot player might have the ability to just check off three things that they need to be able to say or get away with, 
and then they can murder <laughs> murder the investigator by shooting them. They may or may not want to murder the investigator. They may be a peaceful robot. Not, not, not according to Blade Runner. <laughs> At what point in this game do I question whether I, the investigator, am a robot or a human? <laughs> I think that's outside the scope of the rules. That's something you have to internalize for yourself. That's where you have a dream about a unicorn, Mike. And I can already feel a director's cut expansion coming out. <laughs> I've been fascinated by this one since I first saw the Kickstarter for it. I mean, it's a two-player social deduction game, which sounds nonsensical on the face of it, but it just works really well, and they've done so many little clever things with the theming. The physical game is absolutely gorgeous. The box basically takes the form of this whole little lie detector gizmotron. The game comes with actually two rubber stamps. You know, one is human, one is robot. And you actually have to physically stamp the paper at the end of the game. And if, as an investigator, you call someone a robot who is actually a human and they're dragged off to their death, according to the rules, not only do you have to stamp yourself on the wrist as a mark of your shame, but you also have to write an apology to the next of kin and post it on social media, which I think is just amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh, I wonder if there's a hashtag for that. Now I want to go look. <laughs> I'm sure they're out there. It's a fascinating game. Yeah, and, and they do a good job of like giving you prompts. Like I was playing the investigator when me and Frank played it, and they had a, a series of cards that just kind of give you a line of questioning that you can follow and extrapolate from. And poor Frank was a, I believe you were a pop star, but your restriction was you had to say so everything had to be the objective truth. <laughs> I know, so I couldn't state an opinion. Oh, that was brutal. <laughs> yeah. But you were pop stars. Did you have to sing everything? <laughs> no. That's kind of to give you a background or basically yeah. give you a something to talk about. It's oh, like a conversation card. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's neat because there are different sort of themed groups of cards that have different backgrounds, different prompts from the investigator, and different types of penalties and takes and things. So you will get prompts that sort of are designed to evoke particular areas that the robot player would have problems with. If you're a human player, you just want to be normal, but you have to be super careful that you don't accidentally do the penalty. So you may wind up being very nervous, even though you theoretically have nothing to worry about. It's just all the pieces are so clever. I just mm -hmm. really dig this game. When you walk into the room and the investigator's got like four stamps on his wrist already, you're like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is not a good day. <laughs> As a killable organic human... Jason neglected to mention that Inhuman Conditions was released in 2020 and designed and self-published by Tommy Moranges and Corey O'Brien. Uh, so our last game, which wasn't scheduled or anything on this, which is why it's from 20, it's Catan. The game that I snuck in while we were talking is Rivals for Catan by Klaus Teuber, published by Cosmos, but not part of their two-line. After Catan came out, there was a, a really nice Catan card game. It's kind of mean, uh, but it was really vicious. I mean, you could shut someone down in that game. Totally. They included the idea of doing like collectible cards where you choose your deck and oh, no. build your deck <laughs> from these expansions. And it got kind of stupid. Basically, Rivals for Catan took out the mean cards and focused it on being very Catan-like. Basically, what happens is you start with a literally a list of land cards separated by villages, and you can build new 
buildings in your village. And as well, the land cards have dice symbols on them. And you roll a d6 at the start of every turn. And every land card produces according to that six-sided die. Probably seen that part before from Catan. Mm -hmm. But then you're kind of drafting and choosing from these almost through the ages like cards that do all these special powers for getting gold, producing. And that game starts to feel like something else that I don't think has really come out. I mean, it, it kind of feels like a less vicious version of Cities and Knights, Catan, where you're really upgrading your villages and even a little bit of tech tree stuff going. And yet, inside of a two-player game that's, you know, well thought out, this is probably the third iteration of Rivals for Catan, and there's a deluxe edition. And even then, there are expansions for that that take you through a medieval kind of classic rivals for Catan. You start getting into eventually Steam Age and such with the various expansions. And you can feel free to mix any of the cards together to do whatever you want for your decks. Uh, yeah, so that gives us a pretty good, although by no means exhaustive, list of two-player games. I can keep going. I know you can, but... <laughs> My editing time is not limitless. we got places to be. Hopefully you guys have heard about some games that you might like that you didn't know about, or we've talked about ones that you do like. As always, if there are others that you think we should have included, let us know. If you have ideas for episodes or you want to cast votes on some of the ideas we have, please go to SantaBoardGames.com, fill out our poll. We'd love to hear what you guys want to hear us talk about, because as it is now, we just kind of find an excuse to talk about games we like. Which I guess is fine for us, but maybe not as interesting for you is something you're really passionate about. Anyway, stay safe out there and uh, we'll get through this pandemic thing together and be playing board games in Meat Space together again someday. Yay! Everybody stay safe out there and we will talk to you next month. Bye! Bye! We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentOfBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. It's consistent with your brand, Mike, Mark, Frank, <laughs> Frank. whoever you are. Ouch. Yes. Person. Person. I love how you just threw Mark in there somewhere. <laughs> just invading people for the podcast. <laughs>